Life Radio. Stories at the intersection of music and life. Welcome to another episode of Music Life Radio. I am your host, Dan Sauter. Music Life Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliferadio.com and features interviews and stories about and related to music. Today on the program, we feature Carlos Guitarlos. He's been playing guitar since he was age 10 in 1960, and he's been going strong ever since. You might remember his band Top Jimmy and the Rhythm Pigs, a band very popular among the L.A. club scene in the late 80s. We talked to Carlos Guitarlos about his upbringing in the L.A. area, his early influences, his first guitar, how he joined Top Jimmy and the Rhythm Pigs, and got his nickname. We also get into his move to San Francisco, his love of playing music on the street, and talk about some medical issues that put him in the hospital and made him have a change of heart, where he started focusing on his family and his music. Sit back and enjoy another episode of Music Live Radio, this one entitled Straight From The Heart, Carlos Guitarlos, part one of two. Oh, if only had tomorrow I would I'm sitting here with Carlos Guitarlos. And I'm sitting here with me, too. Yeah, exactly. So, how are you doing today, Carlos? Oh, I'm fine. Welcome to Music Life Radio. We are very excited to have you on the program today. If you're that excited, stay over there. <laughs> All right. Now, we like to get a picture of your life on Music Life Radio. That's why it's about music and life, and we want to know get where you... Get some black ink and fill in the space. <laughs> where did you grow up? I was born in Los Angeles at... 421 AM, 15th floor, now it's a maternity ward, at the General USC in LA, that's what it's called now, it's the one in all the old movies, and uh, first lived in Barcelona Homes in the Kwanzaa Huts, that's oh, wow. the, where the military left, out at the Handsome Dam area over near Sunland, out, out in the valley, in the East Valley, and then we moved to um, Olympic Avenue, with the streetcar right in front, a few blocks from the Swiss Armor Factory. Mm-hmm. And then we moved to Cypress Park at age four, and I went to school in Cypress Park. And uh, grew up there till age 14, moved to Echo Park. At age 15 and a half or 16, I just took off during the summer and started playing all over the country and then came back for school. So we lived there during my school years. So what kind of music were you influenced by growing up around that time? Well, I found a xylophone when I was about six in the closet, 
And I picked it up and I hit I hit all the notes. Dun 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 dun. And I realized these two notes sound like this part of the Christmas song or something. Yeah. So I just started right away, you know, playing every song I could think of when you're a little kid. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, or a Christmas song, or NBC, or something, you know. Yeah. Just, but I could pick them out right away. And then my, when I was about nine, my brother got in a band. He was eleven. They were called the Relations. They have a single on the Salesian High School Rock and Roll Show record every year. Salesian High School. That's on Academy Road when you're coming off of Broadway. Uh, just north of downtown and going up to Dodger Stadium. That's where the school is. Mm-hmm. And every year they they put on a rock and roll show as a benefit for the school. So my brother's band played there just a few months after forming, and they were called the Relations. But I was able to pick out stuff, and he had a guitar when I was nine. So by age 10, I wanted one because he wouldn't let me play his. Yeah, and so you convinced your mom to buy you Yeah, your own so guitar. she bought me a guitar from Mr. Acosta across the street. What kind of guitar was it? Just remember? a little classical guitar. Classical guitar. Okay. I didn't even know how to tune it, but I could yeah. play it right away. When I was 10, my older brother's band did originals. They were the only band other than the guys that had records out. So there'd be 10, 15 bands on the same show at Lincoln Park, uh, one of the early parks in L.A. They did all these shows, but there'd always be like one or two bands, like the Midnighters or the Jaguars or Ronnie and the Pomona Casuals or cannibal and the headhunters who opened up for the Beatles, the Beatles mm-hmm. like them. You could play anything that, that you wanted, but you couldn't play their hits or their main covers that those big, ba- big larger bands did on their songs. Mm-hmm. Like if, if Cannibal covered 99 and a half, well, you couldn't do that in the show. Yeah. And you couldn't do Land of a Thousand Dances, which every band did at, at <laughs> their own show. Yeah. So it was hilarious. All, the only thing there was to see was what order are these 12 of the band's going to put the same damn songs in. (laughs) So my brother's band played originals, so they were cool. Yeah, yeah. So I was influenced by my brother, uh, who sold me my first record instead of giving it to me. (laughs) The bastard. What was that? The record was only 59 cents or something. Yeah. He sold it to me for 60 cents. He had, he had to make a profit. He's an entrepreneur. It was was, I'm I'm Sorry by Bo Diddley. Okay. Um... Ba-dum, ba-dum, boom, boom, ba-dum. You ever hear, hear that one? Yep. I'm sorry. It was the Moon Glows that sang back up on that. Woo-woo-wee-woo, mm. They were the favorite singing backup band of most of the uh, R&B artists of, of, of that time, and the Platters, too. Mm-hmm. The Platters were more of an act. But the Moon Glows were great, too. Anyway, um, so I was influenced by that. By my dad singing in the shower when we were kids, by my older brother having that. And then as soon as I took interest in music, started listening to the radio, I realized that, well, I could play these things pretty quickly just by thinking of, well, that's there. And if as I slid along string, that's higher. Then I find out that that same note is five notes lower on the neck on the next string up. Figure out how to play it pretty easily, yeah. So, So that made it real easy. I started getting in, in, into, into music, but I never understood the cycle of fifths. Mm-hmm. That's a circle drawn with a C at the top, which is called the, I think it's called the key or the keystone. And to the right was G, D, A, E, you know, and mm-hmm. there'd be a number, one, two, three, four. G has one sharp, D has two. And then the other way, 
is F, B flat. That's that's a fourth up, and the, the sharps are a fifth up. Mm-hmm. When I realized that five and four make nine, which I already knew, actually. Yeah. Uh, I was a pretty smart kid. <laughs> I realized that the ratio of nine meant something. Uh-huh. So I figured that if, if I'm playing G, and there's the fifth, that's where the, where the new key starts. Mm-hmm. But but that the sharp for it is one behind. And then if I go to the D and lower that, that's the sharp behind that. So that's a fifth behind from where I started. Mm -hmm. So then you move that in fifths, and that's how you get the key signatures for the note that's right in front of it. Mm -hmm. The seventh is the farthest, but it's the closest to the root. So you retain, so it's governed by fifths, you sharp the seventh, you re- and, and then you retain everything and move move along. And I did it in a table form. C, and across the top, C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C. Mm. C going down the side, down, C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C, down the side. And then, so D is here, and D is here. So it's C, D, E's, three of them, yeah. F's, uh, four of them, and then on and on. So it's, it's, it's like a Chinese table. Yeah, yeah. So when I realized that, it, it worked no matter mm. what I did. So I figured that out, and it really helped me. And I learned modes and scales and inversions in the first month by myself without knowing anything about And this. so you just figured that out on your own by just listening yeah. to records and whatnot. Phil Alvin, the singer from the Blasters, mm-hmm. he's a master mathematician. He, he, he takes classes when he has time at Long Beach State, mm-hmm. and sometimes he'll teach there. Yeah, People come from all over. Yeah, yeah. This country and others to listen to him talk. Huh. He never does anything. He just talks and they yeah. and they record it and try and figure him out later because <laughs> he's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. uh, but Phil's a pretty smart guy. So he once told me, he says, Carlos, you're a fine mathematician, but you can't use a pencil and paper, can you? And I said, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I figure out a math problem, I figure it out in a different way, but it's instantaneous. Mm-hmm. So I guess that means something. But I, I figured out that music thing pretty quick. And by the time I was 13, I could play anything, whether it was a Chopin line or a jazz line or a, cla- uh, or a blues or rock and roll. I probably played the notes haltingly and not so well, but I played the right notes, Yeah, which is the important thing. After you get it there, then you put it together and it's tight. Mm-hmm. Then you learn how to play with people and it gets tighter. Yeah, yeah. That's why I can always make good musicians sound good or great. And great musician like transcend into a song. I can always get it going. Where is the music? Where is the love, gal? Where are the good times? My life today. Where is the music? Where is the laughter? The here ever after that once came away. my way where is my baby sweet love to save me how that girl could sway me all night and day
once came my way Where is the music? Where is the laughter? Here ever after The once came my way The once came my way I was playing throughout the 60s yeah. In 67 I started writing songs And the first song was a real complicated jazz song called Running Roads. The second one was a samba. I can I can name off the first hundred or so, but I'm not going <laughs> you to. Don't need to. Second one was a samba. Dum, ba -da -dum, bum, bum, ba -da. Uh, shy away is what it's called. Mm -hmm. And uh, the third one was like a, a Beatlesque kind of a rag thing mm -hmm. with the beat, you know, it's a slower beat. And so I started writing. I didn't know how to write music. Were these all in and, your head, or did you? Did yeah, you, you, and, and then I didn't. We, we we couldn't even afford a TV or a yeah. record player. I was I had a record player on and off, and someone loaned us one. I didn't have a guitar, so I'd go over to friends' houses that had guitar. Then the then the hippie showed up, <laughs> and I was uh, yeah. fifteen or fourteen or something in in the sixties. And so at fifteen or fourteen, I was uh, for a couple of years. I worked at the um, Fifth Estate Coffee House. Helping close it up and clean it up. Okay. That's uh, across from the Chateau Marimont, where sunsets, if you go west, it's on the left side, right where sunset curves. And then the next block is the body shop, that famous trip joint. Mm -hmm. So I was able to meet a lot of people there. And every, every night there was someone playing. So I could get a guitar from somebody and get up and play. And watch somebody and learn what they did and go home and play it. Or the next time that that I had a guitar, I could remember something. Mm -hmm. Now, were you doing solo stuff mainly then, or were you? Yes. You're, okay. Yes. Well, my first band was in '65 with Donatas Blazevich and Vita Sakalaskis. That's Danny Blazes and Vic Sakalaskis. Vic was a drummer, looked just like the drummer from Strawberry Alarm Clock. Oh, okay. He always got mistaken for that guy. <laughs> Incense, peppermints, yeah. da 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 da. And Danny um, was was the guitar player, bass player, and I was the guitar player, bass player. So we would switch off about every other song. You were, what, 15 at that point? Yeah. We had a band called Steamroller. And right after I left, uh, Peter Case joined that band, and they became the Furies or something, mostly mm -hmm. instrumental. So we, we were in a band, and we, we did original songs. And when it came time to graduate high school, instead of going to get my diploma, which I was never going to use, because I was going to play music. Danny and I and Vic, someone gave us a signal from the, from the students to the edge of the field, down the street. So we pull up when it's getting to be w one of our names, Ayala. I would be, I would be the first Ayala, one yeah. after Blazevich or Sakalaskis, mm -hmm. S. So we pull onto the field with a generator on a flatbed with our trio singing the Skip James songs, I'm So Glad. But mm. it was, I'm so, we, but we did it like Cream. Okay. It's a Cream record yeah, that just yeah. come out. I'm so glad, I'm so glad just to get the out of here, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, it was, that was, that was pretty cool. They, and they, 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 the cop took Danny away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when high school w w was over, I left a couple of days later and didn't come back for years. Mm-hmm. Just touring around with different bands, whatever yeah. gigs you could get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Any, any kind of music, a jazz band, a country yeah. band, a, a swing band, a folk band, a, anything. Well, that's a great education right there. Wherever I can hear, I can play. Yeah. Now, if, if I heard a song when I was nine and I liked it, I could remember it when I was 15 and play it exactly right without 
having to think, what are the chords? I just pick a key and mm -hmm. move the chords around, forward or back or yeah. major or minor. I could harmonize the scale at that point. Mm -hmm. By age 20, I moved to San Francisco. I was going to go take lessons when I was 20. I was living in the Bay Area, staying on my friend's couch and um, not making any money. And um, I went to this place called the Community Music Center, 544 Cap Street, 94117, between 20th and 21st, right off Mission. Mm -hmm. It was an old church with a meeting hall and stuff. And so now it was, it was the offices and then the school. I went there. And in the middle were a bunch of offices and storage, and the front was the main office. So around the side, there were all these little rooms. Sure. There, there yeah. used to be tutoring or catechism rooms or mm -hmm. confession rooms, probably. But at this point, they were student rooms all the way around. But halfway down the right side and the left side was the student lounge and the teacher's lounge. So I was told to go sit in the student lounge and wait for someone to come talk to me about taking lessons. So I went to the teacher's lounge by accident, and then all of a sudden there was these people in there. They were all snobby to each other, and, <laughs> and the folk person was like thinking about raisins and, gr and granola, and, <laughs> and, the, and the flautist was like thinking they were all idiots, and he wasn't a flute player. He was a flautist. And pretty soon I had them all jamming together, having fun for the first yeah. time and getting to know each other for the first time and what their names were. And they said, oh, well, we don't need to see anything. We'll get your credentials later. Well, you're, you're hired. The person that was supposed to go there went to the student lounge and couldn't keep up with them. He was supposed to be a teacher. I went here and they couldn't keep up with, with, with me. And some of them were classically trained. Yeah, yeah. So I ended up teaching there for two and a half years making between 28 and 30-something hundred dollars a month in 1970. So that was good. That was good money, huh? That's good money now. Yeah, it was. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I would take any student with any instrument, mm -hmm. figure out that instrument, learn the fingering, and be able to show them. So you really know how to play lots of instruments. No, just, but I can facilitate can, them. Yeah, yeah, I got you. Okay. Like, I know everything about the piano, but I, I'm a one-fingered typist yeah, on the piano. okay. So I did well for a couple of years with that. Then I stopped teaching. So when did you move back down to the L.A. area? By 23, I was back. Okay. 73. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to Vegas for a couple of, twice for a year and then another almost a year. Played it there everywhere mm -hmm. at small places and large rooms, filling in. Oh, by that time, I taught myself how to read. Read music. Read, music. read, 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 sight read and... Mm -hmm. And write out music, write out charts. I could do takedowns really fast. You know what a takedown is? Mm -mm, no. That's when your landlord bashes in your door to get the rent. No. <laughs> um, that's that's when you ba dun dun ba da dun dun da da, and you go and you, and you mm -hmm. stop the music and you, you write figure out the key and write it real real quick. Mm -hmm. ba -da 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 -da, just like, and then you go over later and make it legible. Yeah. yeah. So I was reading music then. I was teaching, and then I moved back to L.A. Then to Vegas, then back, and to Vegas, and back. Then I took off again somewhere. All this time I was writing songs. I, I got to see Poco record some of their first record. My friend Reed Allen Jr. the third. He was this black guy who was the first black guy in the stunt union, which at that time was like Redneck City. <laughs> he finally had to sue to get any to get anything, and they paid him off big time because they didn't want him in. So he went and did other stuff. He was, he was a good singer. Now, Reed and I had, had a band in 67 or 8 at the Temple of the Rainbow, 6970, somewhere in there. Do you know what the Temple of the Rainbow is? 
Okay, there's families, hippie families, all over like the hog farm and all that stuff. Sure, yeah. So every year, the Rainbow family would have a gathering in Colorado or New Mexico or somewhere's house, and you would always see in, in, in the news articles about it, big rainbow banners. Mm-hmm. You ever see something like that? Mm-hmm. And, then, and then other banners from other families, and then just people showing up. Well, the Rainbow family, Jeff and Jeff, well, one of the Jeffs was a drummer. The other Jeff was uh, kind of in charge of the L.A. faction of it. So they had this place called the Temple of the Rainbow, and that's where Little Feet first started practicing. Mm. There was this junkie guy named John, a little small guy, who lived upstairs above the place. Now it's a couple of restaurants. So it was my job to go upstairs, get him, take the needle out of his arm, clean him up, tune his bass, put his shirt on, to take him, to help him downstairs, go back upstairs, get his bass, lock his place up, go downstairs, make sure he had something to eat or drink. And then they would practice at the Temple of the Rainbow, and I ran the PA. Mm-hmm. That's why I was able to go in there with friends at any time, mm-hmm. day or night, you know, big hippie love-in stuff or something. <laughs> uh, groovy music, it's three in the morning. <laughs> and uh, I was able to play. Yeah. Didn't, I didn't have amps or PA, microphones, but I was able to use it because of that and, other, and helping out all the time. So uh, Reed Allen Jr. the third and I had a band, and we never rehearsed. We just got this guy, Rocky, on bass, who lived uh, on Parkman around the corner from the Silver Lake Lounge. And in his garage, he had two Montana power amps. They were big, ported boxes with an amp on top, covered in thick Canterbury Street green corduroy, drab green. (laughs) Ugly. But they were, were, it was a schematic of a a 50s champ amp, a Fender, blown up mathematically to 250 watts yeah that's pretty pretty loud (laughs) so so we're playing once and i go how come that amp's unplugged isn't what's his name showing up today he goes no it's just you and i playing today and the and the and the drummer i go why because he has to get an amp so he can play with us i go why can't he use that he goes because um richie blackmore's coming over to buy it (laughs) so i thought he was trying to shut me up (laughs) so about half an hour into his playing there's a knock on the door (laughs) Hello? <laughs> Hello? And we, we, we hear him finally. Yeah. Who is it? It's Richie. Hello, Richie. <laughs> and he comes in and he buys the amp. Yeah. You know, I guess he'd played it before or something. And it was the only two that were existent at that time. And then he built more. And I can't find anything about it on the internet. The yeah. Mon- Montana Power Amp. So Rocky and I, the, Rocky the bass player with red hair and me with big afro. Uh, Rocky and I and Lee Allen Jr. and some drummer, I suppose. We had this band. It was a blues band. And we never rehearsed. He would just call out a key and a tempo. The, mm-hmm. the singer, Reed Allen Jr., third. And we'd just make up songs. And we <laughs> would never remember them. Yeah. Just make up more. It was a great band. And it sounded good. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun, too. Yeah. Yeah. No rehearsal. I don't want to be in a band with anybody I got to rehearse with. So the what did the vocalist do? Did he just make up stuff? Yeah. Oh, okay. And, yeah. We just made up everything. Yeah. Now, the people I'm playing with now, Robbie Bean on drums and Bill McBeath, the former o- owner of the Ivy Room, Bill doesn't pick up his bass for a year at a time and then just picks it up and nails it. So that's good for, for me. I don't have to rehearse with him. We just hang out instead. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> and um, then after age 23, 24, I was back in Vegas one more time. Then in 75, I spent five years at, at home with my parents. 
just writing more songs. Then at age 30, Dennis True, the door, the front doorman at the Hong Kong Cafe right across from Madame Wong's, mm-hmm. two punk clubs in L.A. Yep. Actually, when New Wave came in, uh, they were all at Madame Wong's and the hardcore punk bands were at the Hong Kong. He's, uh, so my friend Dave Drive, the drummer from The Gears, mm-hmm. an early L.A. punk band from The Mask, he says... Man, life is passing you by. Why don't you come and uh, I'll get your job at the at the Hong Kong. They need a backdoor guy. I know Dennis, so I go over to meet Dennis. He David drops me off there. I didn't have a car. I was thirty, just playing guitar. And he we go over to Dennis's house. He goes, Oh yeah, sure, I'll hire you. So I got paid. And so he goes, Hey, I, I have to go get in the shower and go get dressed. Here, watch this. He walked over to the TV. He reaches over it and he pulls back the curtain mm-hmm. and. And through this, you can see into the next house. Yeah. And it's a friend of mine, Candy Kane, the, the, the blues singer, uh-huh. who for years was the queen of the, of the Double D magazines. Yeah, yeah. She had her elbows taped up in her bra <laughs> or something. So there she is getting, getting changed. <laughs> Here, watch this. <laughs> and so, okay, uh, do we have to leave now? <laughs> I, I told Candy this years later, and she goes, you, you pervert. <laughs> Send me a picture. <laughs> Film at 11. So uh, I worked at the Hong Kong a little bit. And I, from the first night, I got to meet everybody. And I never got in a fight as a bouncer. Mm. I, if there were seven, eight kids fighting, I would just go through them and hit their centers of gravity and n- knock them down without hurting them. And then step to the other side. Yeah. They start up again, go through them again until they stop. And if somebody hit me, I would just pick them up and throw them. Yeah. <laughs> I never hit anybody. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty good. Uh, yank, yank, yank. So I met a lot of people when I was up there at the Hong Kong. And didn't you get your nickname there too, right? Yeah. My, my friend Mark Ferrer, who I met in 1970, I called the Musician's Contact sir, Switchboard. Uh, that was, see, 415-864-1516, I think was the phone number. You can mm-hmm. look it up. It'll be one number off. Yeah. I have a pornographic memory. <laughs> I remember all the positions. <laughs> so uh, I was living at, at 44 Baker mm-hmm. between Page and Haight, right down from the Buena Vista Park. Well, I was staying there uh, one house away from where Janis Joplin lived or something, mm-hmm. y- used to. And uh, I called up, and he goes, well, I'm just up the street from you. Oh, cool. So he, I, look, I look out the balcony, and he's walking down. With it, with his bass, and we started playing. We were friends ever since then. Mark Frere passed away about four and a half, five years ago. Mm. He was he was a good bass player and a, a good songwriter. And so, so Mark Frere, who moved to L.A. a couple of years after I moved back in '75, in '77 he moved there, stayed at my mom's house for where I was for five years at that point, '75 to '80. Mark Frere, until he could find his friend Robin, who called himself Robin Banks. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you why. <laughs> um, but he's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Man, he's nuts. Uh, he's crazier than me at my worst. Yeah. <laughs> at my worst, worst, worst. <laughs> Robin Banks. I'm scared even saying his name. <laughs> so um, uh, until a couple of weeks later when Robin, when he found, got a hold of Robin, Robin came and got him. He moved into Robin's house, started working, got a job, got his own place down on Elmwood across from the Wilshire Fine Arts. Mm-hmm. Elmwood a few blocks up from Ray Charles Recording Studio on Western Avenue in mm-hmm. Los Angeles. Mark Frere moved down there. And then in 1980, Mark and I were always in touch and playing. 
1980, he was playing with this guy named Top Jimmy, who I'd never heard of. Mm. And I wasn't working at the Hong Kong, and I was just staying at home writing songs. When Dave Drive told me to go to get a job through Dennis True and through Candy Cane in the window. Yeah. <laughs> how much is that booby in the window? So there I was at the Hong Kong working with my 61 Telecaster, L58461. It was an L series. Mm-hmm. That was a serial number. <laughs> yeah, I remember. Like, <laughs> and um, except my name. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you'll have to insert that. So there I am with the guitar on, knocking people that were getting a little too rough in the in the in the in the pit with my guitar on. Yeah. Not getting a dent on me or or, or the guitar. <laughs> then up and then up the back door because I'm I'm the back door guy there. And uh, up and up the back door comes my friend Mark Frere. Well, I'm supposed to tell people you can't come up this way unless you're yeah. in the band and stuff. Yeah. And I didn't know any bands out of that scene, so I had to suss it out all the time. <laughs> There's just drunk with him. I'm thinking, well, here's Mark, but I don't know this other guy's with him. Sure. This other guy's finishing up a beer, kicks the door open, and throws the beer out. It breaks. <laughs> thinking, oh fuck, I gotta get rid rid of this guy. <laughs> <laughs> so he goes. I go, hey, Mark, uh, and I got start talking to this other guy, hey, uh, and he goes, no, 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 this is Top Jimmy. Uh-huh. I go, and I heard he was a good singer and stuff, yeah. but I didn't know him. Uh, and he goes, hey, and he tries to get past me to go get beer off the table, yeah. someone's beer that when they weren't looking or just beer that was left. So I'll tell you a story about that in a minute. <laughs> so he introduces himself, and he introduces Jimmy. He goes, uh, this is Top Jimmy, put my hand up. And this is Carlos, and I have my guitar on. Yeah. Carlos Guitarlos. <laughs> he just makes it up on the spot, and it's stuck. <laughs> so Jimmy was playing with Mark on bass. Mm. This is 1980, or very early. Kent Henry from Steppenwolf. Okay. My friend Tim West, a great guitar player who I still know. Jerry Posen, who was the producer on a song called Tighter and Tighter. And he, the band was called Alive and Kicking. He played the trumpet lead solo on it and produced the, the whole record. Mm. It was a number one hit. Mm-hmm. That was 1970. Jerry Posen w- w- was the drummer, and that song t- uh, went, Come on, I list a little bit tighter now, baby. Trumpet. I need you so much and I can't let you go. No, 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 come on. You ever hear that one? That sounds familiar. a number one hit. Number one hit for a long time. So that was Jerry, and of course, he, all that money went right up uh, one of his ex- one of his extremities. Yeah. <laughs> so it was two guitars, bass and drum, and J- and Jimmy, and they played the show at the, at the whiskey where Jimmy was drunk and real big at that point, real mm. fat. So he tries to do a stage a stage dive like you know like Darby, sure, who was mm-hmm. still alive until des- until yeah. December. Uh, by that time, we already had a band with me and Jimmy and. Anyway, um, he tried to do a stage dive, and people got out of the way because he was so fat (laughs) and drunk and stinky. They they didn't want to be landed on, pissed and shit on, and vomited on, I suppose. So he he broke a rib, and he's still singing on the broken rib. It was funny. He he, he thought they'd carry his carcass through the crowd. (laughs) We were opening up for, no, he was opening up for for X. Okay. Um, That was his best friend, Billy Zoom, or, or Kendall, his last name, Billy Zoom. Here's Top Jimmy and the Rhythm Pigs with Obviously Five Believers. Early in the morning, early in the morning, loving you too, loving you too, please come on. 
so I met Jimmy again. We got together over at John and Exine's house on Genesee off Santa Monica near Elliott Salter Pawn Shop, still a great pawn shop. And uh, so he goes, uh, you know the song called 44? No, I never had many records mm -hmm. or a record player or TV. I had to remember something from before and retain it, borrow a guitar, and then play it immediately. Mm -hmm. So I said, no, he, he plays a little bit of it. And I go, oh, yeah, because I, I, because I knew that riff from when John Mayle and Eric Clapton did Little Girl on the Blues Breakers with Eric Clapton yep. on the so-called Beano album. Uh -huh. And because they go, I wear my 44 solo. That's Willie Dixon, but uh, John Mayle and Eric Clapton had, you're going to be my little girl. You've been through 18 years of pain. Dun, 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 dun. A little more charged mm -hmm. up and moving. So it just fit, you know. So I said, yeah, I know it. So that was it. He goes, well, and when John and Nixine get back, because they were on tour and Jimmy was staying at their house, uh, where they took that picture for the wild gif on, the, on their mantle mm -hmm. with that X and all the stuff around, you know. Um, so I was hanging out there for a couple of weeks until they, they got back and were learning songs. And then John and Nixine get back and I, I meet them and Jimmy says, okay. And then they gave, him some, they gave him some money for watching the place. And he says, okay, I'm going to catch a bus to Vegas to stay at my sister's place. And he, and he tells me to get a band to a band to together and to call all these guys and tell them that they're fired. And they're all my best friends. <laughs> Ken Henry, Mark Ferrer, Tim West, and Jerry Posen, great musicians, but just not Jimmy's style. You yeah, know? okay. So they were doing sense. double guitars, you know, and yeah, everything. Yeah. And the solo, it was just, you know, like the Allman Brothers and Jimmy didn't want to hear that crap, yeah. although it was great. And so we were just a raw gut pocket band. At first, when I played with, with Jimmy, though, in, in that first month, Jimmy came back and we did a gig at the Hong Kong, February 1980. Um, and, and on the band was Why Not and a band by this guy named Spider. Now, George Hurley came out of that band, mm -hmm. the, the drummer for uh, the Minutemen. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So we do this gig and it's John Doe on drums, on bass. This guy is Steve Smith, who looked like a narc on mm -hmm. drums. Steve Berlin and um, Xene. So I start out by doing an instrumental song of mine and then slipping and sliding, slipping and a sliding, peeping and a hiding by Larry Williams, mm -hmm. my favorite rock and roll songwriter, and probably the best one, but not as prolific as Chuck Berry. Mm -hmm. He wrote uh, Short Fat Fanny and Dizzy Miss Lizzie and all that. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're doing that, and Xene is singing every song I sing with me, so I'm, okay, just singing. But she always got into the energy of it because I was high, high energy. Mm -hmm. So our band was a loud rock and blues band, and we were more of a punk band than any of the punk bands. They couldn't keep up with us. Yeah. yeah. Fear or anybody. Uh. We would pound it <laughs> and get those punk kids going like crazy. But at first it was me and Jimmy and John Doe and DJ Bonebreak after Steve Smith and after Dan Johnson left on Rhythm and Billy Zoom stopped playing with us every, at every gig on guitar and sax. And so I find this ad in the recycler. Mm -hmm. It's a free paper. And the first word is always printed darker. Mm -hmm. So the first, and, and under musician, the first word I, that caught my attention was manic. It <laughs> says, manic bass player seeks ear busting, party crashing, beer for breakfast, big city blues band. <laughs> 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 no wimps or, or, or posers called Gil. 
224 6420. There you go, 323. His parents are gone, so is the number. And so, so without even calling him, I I called Jimmy and I'd say, I found a bass player. (laughs) This is before he even called him. And then he's supposed to come over to my parents' house just before I moved out of there again in 1980. And and I and I hear this green little 1960 van pull up, green, and all the the you know the Biscayne model, the lowest model, all mm. stock and all dirty. Then out of the back, and this is an alley that's got dirt and gravel and stuff behind my parents' house, mm-hmm. so we can load in there. And out of the back, the thing flies open, the uh, doors, mm. and then with the Ampeg in his hand. Ampeg giant cabinet yeah, and the Ampeg head <laughs> and his big jazz bass on the little finger in the case <laughs> on one of his fingers. He jumps out into the alley <laughs> with all this hundreds of pounds of equipment. It's nothing to him. Yeah. He jumps out and goes boom, <laughs> and dust from the alley goes boom, and comes up to his waist. So out of this cloud comes this four hundred and fifty pound guy. With a little soul patch and, and this, you know, yeah, yeah. kind of like what I got except for this. Yeah. And uh, and it turned out that all the rhythm pigs had had that. And he turns on and he goes, hi, I'm Gil. So we go into the garage or the old dilapidated old garage where we didn't park the car. And and in there I've got uh, Living in the City by Fear. Yeah. And he goes, oh, you, you got that record. I'm going to get that. I go, yeah, some, some guy, some friend of Jimmy's gave it to me. And like a little kid or a tourist from Iowa on Hollywood Boulevard <laughs> oh. looking at the stars uh, on the sidewalk, he goes, you know Lee Vane? <laughs> I go, yeah, he's our harmonica player. <laughs> <laughs> but So Lee used to bring a Marshall, yeah. a half stack with a 200-watt with a head or something, and for a couple his, of harps. For his harmonica. Yeah, for his harmonica <laughs> amp. That was his amp for the band yeah, Fear. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he goes... So the next time Gil came over, he brings his fear records over, and he goes, get him to sign these. And I go, you get him to sign them at, at our gig. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's going to play harp. Yeah. Okay, so I, I, I got together guilty. Jimmy brought Dig the Pig, who was in the Dirty Dogs. They were coming back from a gig in Wyoming, right? Yep. They're mm-hmm. from Wyoming. And there's the cops with shotguns, cars across the road when they see him coming because they know they're a crappy van. Yeah, and yeah. they went to their parents' house and told them they're throwing them out of town. Yeah, yeah. And so the parents said, sure, get them out of here. <laughs> uh, so there they are with their suitcases and some money from the parents and their instruments and clothes. They say, you're not coming back in into town. They ran them out on, on a rail. with, mm. you know, What were they going to do, throw them in jail? Makeups to charge, yeah. so that was Dig Dig the Pig, and Eric Amble. Eric mm-hmm. Amble ended up playing with Joan Jett, oh, okay. and becoming a very well-known record producer, mm-hmm. a great one. So, and then so Jimmy brought in Dig the Pig because he had speed, <laughs> and Jimmy didn't care what it was as long as it was something. Mm-hmm. So I meet him. Okay, he doesn't really know how to play so well, but he could rock out a song if, if he knew it yeah, yeah. with just chords, and that was yeah. great. After a while, because we were a power blues band sort of then it was joey morales whose Mm -hmm. father is lloyd morales who played with les brown for 29 years Mm. and another 20 something years with bobby vinton in vegas Mm. and joey's brother who played on the piggest drunkest maximus Mm -hmm. along with dj bonebreak um joey played harmonica on it and we had ray manzarek in the uh, in our band who paid for our record that was done but never released not didn't even have a name of it yet 
But we did release Piggest Drunkest Maximus, yeah. recorded in 81, released in 87 or 8. Um, recorded in 81, but not released till 87, huh? so were you just trying to get the money together to finish it up? or No, we just didn't give a fuck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we didn't have a manager, didn't have a yeah. manager, we didn't have a car, a phone, nothing, you know. Is there any interest in re-releasing that at all? Has well, any- I know where it is. Yeah. I know who has it. Yeah. He's a friend of mine. And I'd have to go through Steve Berlin, Renee Dalder, and and this guy, Mark. But I'm sure it can be done. Well, let, let him do that after I'm gone. Um, <laughs> Here's Top Jimmy and the Rhythm Pigs doing Bob Dylan's Ballad of a Thin Man. You walk into the room with your pistol in your hand. You see somebody naked and you say, We started playing around everywhere. We were playing 10, 12 times a week. And every gig for nine years, except for one, the place was packed. Mm-hmm. Now, X, if they wanted to play four nights at the Whiskey, couldn't play anywhere within 300 miles for two weeks before yeah, and two yeah, weeks after yeah. to guarantee sales. Yeah. We, we would play the Whiskey on a Friday and pack it. Yeah. Um, and then Saturday at the, at the Roxy, pack it like a block away. Yeah. <laughs> And then go back to filling for somebody at the whiskey, opening up for somebody. Uh. And then Sunday at the Central. And then Monday, the surf punks call and say, can you get, this is before the internet. Yeah, yeah. The Andrew machines had yeah. just been there for a couple of years. Can you get the word out that you, will you open up for us for 200 bucks? Because no one's bought any tickets yet. Yeah. And they're, they're on a label now. Yeah. So we get the word out and the place is packed. Yeah, that's great. And then on Tuesday, 
we play this central that's all within a couple of blocks yeah. and then wednesday we, we go in the afternoon and play at usc and then that night at the cafe de grand and then friday at the cafe every friday or every second friday and every monday at the cafe and it just went on and on for years so you ran into lots of people i'm sure yeah. oh man yeah. i always tell people well, everywhere i go in the world if i don't know somebody they know me <laughs> exactly so when my nephew was helping me do straight from the heart and hell hell can wait and I was getting over myself and getting healthy. Um, he says, I said, well, come on, what happened? What happened? We're, we're calling them, what, you know, this person or a gig or something. Mm -hmm. He goes, well, the good news is they they know you. And what's the bad news? They they know you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, in 1983, you met Marilyn, who was your first wife, right? Yeah. Can you tell us the story of how you introduced yourself She to was her? going with one of the karma bums, C-A-R-M-A. With yeah, S.A. Yeah. Griffin and all these great poets, uh -huh. the karma bums, they, they'd get in a big Cadillac and do all the all the poetry slams. Uh -huh. And um, so she was going with one of those guys, and I and I I knew them all. And so I see her, and it wasn't my solo yet, so I just put the guitar down, it's feeding back, and I go over there, I get a hold of her, pick her up and give her a big kiss in front of everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just laid her back down, and she's a puddle of puppy piss, <laughs> and um, I go back and play. That's, yeah. that's how, uh, how, uh, how I met her. And what was her reaction? <laughs> I was the handsomest guy in the world. That's great. I didn't look like this. <laughs> what were some other highlights of the band during those 80s? Well, sometimes we were sober. Yeah. <laughs> Rarely, but... I had a friend who was uh, arrested uh, off the Korean coast. He's passed away now. As the biggest dealer to a... America, so mm. we always had fun. Yeah, yeah. Now, how did you run into like the Blasters and? Well, they, they were in this uh, through Steve Berlin, kind of found okay. them. Yeah, and he sort of found the Lobos. He and he and Dave Lobos, Lobos, yeah. Now the Lobos, I knew because they used to follow my little brother's band around. So I knew some of them before they knew each other. Now Caesar always wanted to buy my little brother's '56 Les Paul Junior, mm -hmm. a bad ass guitar. Yeah, and. Uh, they had a band, my little brother had a band called Free Road, and they would sing harmonies like, like great mm. and play well, mm -hmm. play really well. My little brother's a great guitar player, so is my older brother, Ray. And Caesar had to remind me of that. I go, you were that little guy <laughs> bugging us all the time? And um, I've known the Lobos for a long time. They do my song called Pick But Shuffle that's, that I, I made up. Mm -hmm. And that Steve Berlin would do with me in unison. Twice and then a four. Back to the head and then solos. Mm -hmm. And then one time, then, then the four chord, and then out on the head once. So it's it's like a rock and roll, sort of a bop tune from Central Avenue style. Okay, yeah, yeah. And you don't know what Central Avenue is. Bad dog. <laughs> Somebody else want to do this show? <laughs> Central, okay, New York had the big jazz scene. Yeah. Chicago had the big blues scene. In the 40s, throughout some of the, most of the 50s, was the Central Avenue scene in, in L.A., okay. east, east of Broadway. And down and down there, they had uh, about 30, 40 clubs in just a five or six, seven block area. And they had the best of both worlds. Like you'd see 
Sonny Stitt jamming in a blues band. Mm-hmm. After everybody did all the gigs, they'd be jamming everywhere. Sure. So you'd see Elmore James playing with somebody with a jazz guy on drums mm-hmm. or a, mm-hmm. the you know the most you know, like like Clark Terry on the horn for a minute, you know, mm-hmm. or just anything. Everybody went and played there. Everybody. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. So the songs, and I have a song called The Central Avenue Stomp. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so uh, uh, the Lobos do one of my songs. Yeah. Good. The, so, and the Blasters covered I've Been Drinking Again for a while when they had Smokey Hormel. You know mm-hmm. who Smokey Hormel is? I know the name, but I, I don't know. Well, his name is not Smokey. Yeah. They call him Smokey because of his family business. Uh-huh. The Hor- Hormel. Meet. You know, with the big two-story yeah. cooker and the building built yeah. around it for the sea rations, World yeah. War II. Sea rations mean canned rations. Yep. Spam. Spam, yep. So the Blasters do my song called I've Been Drinking Again that, the, that David Lee Roth wanted to cover. And I thought, oh, I better not let them do that. Well, that would have been $411,000 every, <laughs> every four months for one song on a record that was shipped double platinum. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. glad that didn't happen. I wouldn't have met Marilyn. I wouldn't <laughs> have had my daughter Eloise. Yeah, yeah. I'd have been dead. The band would have made me borrow money against the first check. And we'd all been dead yeah. <laughs> on our way to rehab with, with Dr. Drew Pinsky uh, in jail, being tagged yeah. to go to the morgue and get high. Yeah. So I'm glad that didn't happen. I've been drinking again. There's not a prayer for me. Well, it's the way things have gone. They used to worry me. Now love is mine. And I won't love sometime. I don't know which way to turn. Because Top Jimmy kept playing, and what, what what led you to leave? And I know well, you were but Marilyn and Eloise got tired of all that rigor. Yeah. Oh, Eloise was a baby. Yeah, Marilyn got tired of that, and I don't blame her. But we're still best friends. Gary Leonard, the famous photographer, mm-hmm. says they have the best divorce. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember reading that sometime. In fact, she's staying at my girlfriend's house now, doing a wearable art show in Pasadena, and then going to go back and stay with my daughter. My daughter was supposed to be in New York for a month doing another film. She only spent five days there. Now she's working on the Discovery Channel as an art director for a new show or a show called Unusual Suspects. Okay. She had to look at gruesome, real, 
and hear the whole story, Ooh. a synopsis of yeah. the crime, yeah. and go to, and go to places and and scouting and all this uh-huh. kind of stuff, uh, so the, so she could dress it uh-huh. as the art director. Uh, so she's the art. Well, director no, we're not. The... We can't use that place. Yeah. The lighting at that time of the yeah, day yeah. is not going to be right, and we yeah. don't. We can't afford to light that. You know, put in a synopsis for everything. So I went to San Francisco. I was playing in clubs, making some good dough. Uh, Just playing and, any kind of bands you could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I had my own band. I was okay. playing with Chris Seifert okay. from um, Piano Player, voted the best young new jazz piano player by Lee Hildebrand or Lee H- whatever his name is, uh-huh. whose daughter's a singer too. Le- uh, Leonard Feather. Okay. And his daughter is Lorraine Feather. Okay. Who's married to Tony's brother? Who's <laughs> married to Joey's brother from the Rhythm Pigs? <laughs> Oh, okay. So um, he vo- he named him the best new piano player, but he was in my band playing blues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he ended up with this other completely unrelated band called LeVay Smith and the Red Hot Skillet Lickers. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. You heard of them? They're yeah. like a corporate band now, but they play yeah. other stuff. They're they're a good good business now, you know, yeah, yeah. hundreds of thousands a year, hundreds yeah. of thousands. And so um, her great-grandmother was LeVay Smith. So that's where she got the name. Mm-hmm. So then uh, Marilyn and I settled down as friends again. You know, I didn't live there. And my daughter grew up with Marilyn, which is a great, intelligent person. Mm-hmm. Uh, her great, great, great grandfather was in Arabia with, with Lawrence, one of the two or three Americans or white people in the country at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were all friends. And uh, he was one of the guys that started the Texas Oil Company, mm-hmm. which became Texaco. And mm-hmm. Marilyn's father was a... Uh, in oil all his life, and even at an, the age of 88 or 89, he was still a consultant to the big guys. Mm, yeah, wow. So, but Marilyn's never, she's always worked. Yeah. Always. And what now, around what time was this? Was this, uh, this must have been in the early 90s? After so 88, 90, 80, uh, yeah. And I got diabetes March 4th, 1990, on Marilyn's birthday on a uh, Sunday. Okay. And after being in a coma for three days with... Sh- a stabilized sugar of 2,600, enough mm. to kill five people. Mm. Um, I had no brain, da- had no, had, no, 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 I had no brain, da- <laughs> something or other damage. <laughs> anyway, so Dr. Abihitena heard of my case. Uh-huh. He was working at, at that one at the end of Divisadero and Gary, that big fancy hospital, Cedars or something, I don't know okay. what it's yeah. called. Um, where they do blood specialist work, some of the best best mm-hmm. in the world at that time. So he heard about it, and he came and stayed in my room for three days on a cot mm-hmm. to monitor me, and then took me for a year for free. And he's wow. a highly specialized yeah. doctor in this country, in this world, and he saw me for a year for free and said, I can't believe that you you came out of this mm-hmm. un, unscathed. Yeah. Unscathed. Wow. Unscathed. <laughs> so... um so we were, we were friends, and I stayed here throughout the nineties. And I ended up playing on the streets. I never lived on the streets; mm-hmm. only played on them. We were just at, at any point you could yeah. have come up to me, and I could have looked around and pulled out a stack of hundreds and gone. Whoosh, yeah, 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 exactly. You put them back that. and oh. made sure I had a couple of bullets on me for somebody. <laughs> and um, I always used to carry a piece of wood and put it near me, mm-hmm. so I had my box when I was playing. So and I I broken. Three or four wrists or hands. Yeah. Someone getting, I just go, wow. Someone trying to get take your, your, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. money. Yeah. That's terrible. But I'd, I'd always have somebody call an ambulance for them. Oh. Of course, they ran off because they were high. Yeah. <laughs> they were looking for drug money. But no one ever bothered me. And, and I pro- played at 16th and Mission yeah. for years. Mm-hmm. 
The well, worst you won an award, didn't you, for best busker? Yeah, it was, so what? <laughs> and so um, I was at the worst corner. Mm -hmm. So there I am at 16th and Mission on the southwest side, mm -hmm. Caddick Corner from the Walgreens. Okay. What was this? Oh, and I made money at that corner. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't believe it. I, I made money every day mm -hmm. from the same people. And then I'd go to the wharf during the summer or Market Street during the business hours between sure. 11 and 1.30 or 2. In the morning, I'd be at 16th Mission downstairs or upstairs if it was sunny on that side. But downstairs, because people were coming in there to go around to buy the ticket, and there I was mm -hmm. on the south side underneath. Yeah. So I'd make money there. And then when they were coming home, I'd go to the top of the stairs right there where that was. And then when they were building that little art wall there with all the stuff, the artist said, no, don't, don't throw him out. Yeah. Let him play here. So the city, I was the only person that could play there during that year and a half that was being built. Huh. That fancy artwork at 16th and Mission. That was kind of cool, being able to make money out of nothing. Now, so you did that for years, right? For Until about 10 years. Atropelia by Carlos Guitarlas. And that's from his album recorded in 2003 called Straight from the Heart. Next time on Music Live Radio, part two of the interview with Carlos Guitarlas. Thanks for listening to Music Live Radio. I am your host, Dan Sauter, and we'll catch you next time.